1: Listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what does American history tell us about politics now? Heather Cox Richardson is Professor of History at Boston College. She's also author of the wildly popular Letters from an American Newsletter. The New York Times recently described her as by accident the most successful independent journalist in America. No small claim that one. She gives a long view of events of the day, often with sweeping historical perspective, to her hundreds of thousands of subscribers. She also writes books on American political history and the Republican Party. Her latest is called How the South Won the Civil War, oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. The soul of America is a recurring theme in her work, but does she think we need a reinterpretation of what America really is? And we ask Professor Richardson, a woman with deep roots in Maine and married to a lobsterman, why, of all the historical song styles, we're seeing a return to the sea shanty craze. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here.
1: I'd like to start with the idea of a newsletter. It's fundamental to a lot of our work these days in journalism and publishing. The Economist sends out a lot of newsletters on different topics. But yours is a bit different. It's quite specific. And it reminds me of something called the letters of news that I think circulated in around the 17th century in England. And these were intended to put across big developments to people who weren't, as we would now say, inside
0: the bubble. Am I right? Well, very much so, I think. One of the things that's hard when you do politics or history is making it relevant to people's everyday lives, because it's sort of like baseball. You know, if people follow baseball, as so many people do, they can tell you exactly which pitcher is injured and why it matters that somebody was traded. And for most of us, it's a bunch of guys on a bunch of grass taking their time while you eat a hot dog and drink a beer. So it's very hard to understand what those little things mean in the larger picture. And one of the fun things about writing a newsletter is going ahead and saying, hey, this little thing happened, but here's why it's important down the road. And it's kind of fun to sit there and say, hey, what are the little things that matter today that actually have national implications?
1: And to what extent is this informed by the sense of needing to offset misinformation, not only in the far right news media, but perhaps also? A sense of a bubble, which I think we're all quite familiar with if we talk about perhaps Democrat bubble or even a kind of liberal mindset can very easily become self-reinforcing and a bit incurious.
0: Well, you have to remember that I started Letters from an American not by any internal uh, drive, but rather because my readers at the time um, were asking questions about the way that the investigation of the Ukraine scandal was playing out. Because again, that was a very in the weeds kind of discussion, but that's what I do. I study politics, so I understood who the characters were and what they were doing. And people kept asking me questions about who was doing this, who were these characters. So I started simply explaining, but within in that very quickly Uh, rose to the surface, my drive in my work, which is to reclaim in America really the concepts of the Enlightenment, the idea that public discourse must be fact-based and it must be argument-based. And people seem to think often that I am specifically attacking Republicans because, of course, that was easy during the Trump administration. I'm really not acting as a shill for either the Republican or the Democratic parties, but rather as a shill, if you will, for democracy and the concept of an Enlightenment-based fact-based public discourse.
1: I'm interested in the audience that you reach. It's probably like you. I live a lot of my time in a almost over-informed social media world. But your audience is not just these people who are super served and involved in, in arguments on social media. I've been reading that you have a passionate fan base of middle-aged and older women. That's often a demographic, not so much in the hue and cry of the big Twitter spats or Facebook rows. What do you know about your audience?
0: I don't know a lot about it, to be honest. I don't actually look at any of my uh, statistics or demographics or ratings or whatever it is that people who are involved in the media tend to look at. I care a lot about writing. I care a lot about history. And for me, that's the fun. It's a paralyzing idea that you're writing for a million people. And I can't think that way. I literally write for some of my friends. And if other people want to read that, I'm thrilled to have them do it. That, I think, comes through and perhaps does speak to the audience that I'm perhaps taking on issues that are certainly of interest to me, but maybe are of interest to other people like me, people who are interested in the world at large, but are not perhaps interested in any specific... Um, political take on the world.
1: It's also a commercial venture, isn't it? I think The Economist
0: reported it's thought, we said carefully, that
1: you made around a million dollars a year from the newsletter. Is, Is that correct?
0: I began to monetize the newsletter in June of last year. It has been a a huge financial success, yes, but the reason that I did that was not, you know, I actually have a full-time job that I love and that, that compensates me very well. I had to do that, interestingly enough, because the letters are published every day for free on Facebook, and I'm there very deliberately because I want to combat the disinformation there, but that meant that Facebook was, is, was and is absolutely swarmed with trolls, and bots, and um, and because I was getting so much email, I simply couldn't answer my email, and even now I can't. I have two people who handle nothing but email, and now I'm about to hire a third. It had grown beyond me, and I wanted to do two things. I wanted to go ahead and make sure Substack was getting paid because they were the ones who were making this possible. Uh, I not only publish on on Facebook, of course, I do send it out as a newsletter, Um, but also because I needed to have a team to simply handle that end of the business. So, yes, it has been a financial success, but I really do consider it its own thing, if you will. Um, And I kind of have my own thing, too. I am, of course, a history professor who writes history books and actually quite likes to write history books. So I'm in no danger of deciding I'm going to throw over my dream job in order to do what turned out to be a second dream job, but which is, at the end of the day, an extraordinary amount of work. Sometimes those letters take 10 hours to write.
1: We're going to delve a bit into the the long view and... uh exercise that history muscle that you you have and you bring to bear on the newsletter. You published a book in 2014 called To Make Men Free, a history of the Republican Party. And you show a party oscillating between different phases. We might call them in modern parlance, more moderate and conservative, but a kind of Jekyll and Hyde complex. And I'm interested in where you think American conservatism is going. And our conservative movements a bit stuck between this radical base, terrific energy and drive, convening power and excitement and sort of cautious continuity candidates, frankly, doesn't seem to be that much appetite for.
0: It's a very interesting time right now in the history of the Republican Party. And the rise of current day American conservatism, and I'm putting that in air quotes, if you will, was based in a really radical concept of trying to overturn the New Deal. But in the 1950s, uh, people like William F. Buckley Jr. picked up that concept and called themselves capital C conservatives. And they did so to stand against what in 1954, Buckley and his brother-in-law, L. Brent Bazell, said was um, a a movement of capital L liberals, which they considered quasi communists. And they capitalized the, the word liberal to make it look like the Chinese capital C communist party. And they said that they were conservatives, capital C conservatives standing against that. Even at the time, people observing those said, hey, this isn't conservatism. You know, conservatism at this point is the liberal consensus, the idea that you have a government that stabilizes the economy. You people are radicals. And and Buckley was willing to accept that idea that he was going to overturn this consensus in order to create a new consensus. So that idea that today's people are conservatives is actually dead wrong. They're, They're quite radical. And I think you can see this after what happened on January 6th, if you couldn't see it before, but there were certainly a number of us who could.
1: I was about to say, where do you think today's party fits into that? It's almost a bit too comfortable for me, I think, to say, well, these people are radical and in the conservative tradition, that means they're, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, a bit wild, a bit unreasonable. I mean, there was another reason, of course, for it, wasn't there, which is sort of kind of liberal pluralists were seen to have their their own interests to benefit disproportionately and to be a radical conservative at many points has been just to say, hey, you liberal, you don't get it all your own way.
0: One of the things that's interesting right now about uh, taking a look at who is embracing the what I'm going to call um, uh, derogatorily the crazy wing of the Republican Party, although I really want to emphasize that all of the people who are representing Republicans in Congress right now, all of the lawmakers at the national level are, to my mind, economic radicals. They want to see a return to a government that does not, in fact, uh, regulate uh, business, provide a basic social safety net, or promote infrastructure, all of them. And it is worth pointing out here that in 2016, when Donald Trump was running for the Republican uh, nomination, he was the most moderate Republican on that stage. Uh, when they were in the debates. And people forget that because he didn't govern that way, but he did, in fact, call for fair taxes. He did call for an extension of the Affordable Care Act. He said a number of things that talked about the revival of that liberal consensus. He didn't govern that way, but he certainly talked that way. But what's interesting about where we are now and this extremely um, vocal QAnon radical wing It is worth noting that you can absolutely talk about this movement in American racial terms. These people look very much like the um, Southern white Democrats after the Civil War who made it a point to erase a a pluralist democracy in the American South from about 1880 until uh, the 1960s. And they had the same kind of radical fringe, they had the same kind of uh, bloodlust, they had the same kind of determination to erase their opponents from the political equation, although at that point they were quite vocally doing so based on race. So there is always in America this link between race and class after the Civil War that I think you can really see playing out nowadays. Most notably, there was a piece today in The Atlantic that talked about an analysis of the people who had been arrested for participating in the January 6 coup attempt. And what they said, and, and they seemed astonished by this, and any historian of Reconstruction is like, yeah, of course. What they found is that powerful designation of who would have been participating in those riots are that they are people from counties where the counties are very closely split between between Republicans and Democrats. Well, that to any historian of Reconstruction is just a no brainer because that's exactly where you saw violence in the American South after the Civil War is not in counties that were heavily white or heavily black, but in ones that were very close because people were struggling to determine the outcome
1: and they were particularly contested i should say if we if we're looking at people who are storming the, the capital and using violence uh, to bring their demands to bear i mean i think we can certainly talk there about dangerous radicals i was making the, the point that radicalism can have a small r or a big r and a lot of people you can be an anti liberal but uh, absolutely have no truck with violence and is your worry now then heather david if we'd been talking before the election result was settled and albeit with a violent and shameful eruption in the nation's capital. But Donald Trump is off playing golf and he's in Florida doing whatever he's doing. And Joe Biden is in the White House. There's a new administration. So I could put a sort of challenging question to your worries that you've you've written a lot about your fears of authoritarianism and particularly in the republican party the republicans are now in opposition and they have some blocking power considerable blocking power but they kind of need to sort themselves out and there's a big conversation and argument they're going to need to have crucially they're out of power well a sort of an inverted commas good or effective authoritarian doesn't find themselves out of power so are we worrying too much
0: Oh, I don't think we're worrying too much at all. It is worth pointing out that what happened on January 6th is unprecedented, that um, that uh, about 150 members of the Republican House of Rep- uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives signed on to what was quite obviously a lie about the legitimacy of that election. And those people have not backed down. And they are continuing to argue that, in fact, the Democrats being in power is a perversion of the American system, that the Democrats have won only because they stole power. And from that, you have seen, and I I don't quote me on this, but I believe it's 29 new laws in a number of states designed to keep Democrats from voting again. And, of course, we have another election in 2022. So, you know, the Republicans are not in power now. But this is a very, very real concern that they could regain power.
1: You gave censuring of people who disagreed with the the Trump line or the Trump myth-making about the election as an example of a move to authoritarianism in a newsletter that that you wrote at the back end of, of January. But it was interesting to me that when we interviewed Cindy McCain on this show she kind of laughed off the censure that she got in arizona she said i find it comical i really do in fact we're talking about having t-shirts made they'll do what they do and my life will go on (laughs) you're 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 smiling as i I read that to you but you know she seemed to kind of have a view it's part of the rough and tumble and i'm going to fight for the soul of my party and other people can have another fight in another corner is that not a, a sort of reasonable response to
0: what's happening a reasonable response if that's what she wants to do. And I do think it's very important to laugh off, especially what's happening in places like Arizona, where there is a chair of the Republican Party there who has gone ahead and taken a stand against even people like former Senator Jeff Flake, who, as I say, is quite himself, quite an extreme uh, Republican, um, that was sort of forced out by more people, people further to the right. I think it is important to recognize at this point that they are not directing what's going on in the country. But I'm also very aware that we had a very similar situation in the country in the 1850s, when you had an increasingly radicalized a group of people who came to believe that the lawmakers in the government were not legitimate, and were deliberately trying to destroy America, and they really believed that they were fighting for the soul of the country, as you say, and from that we had our great civil war. Now, I'm not endorsing at all the idea that we're moving toward a civil war, just to the contrary, but one of the things that's important about Cindy McCain and what so many people are doing when they are coming out and endorsing the idea of a government that moves forward together is they are quite deliberately trying to reclaim the narrative from the radicals and take us back into, uh, as a friend of mine says, you know, we have uh, the Republican Party has sort of driven the car into the ditch. And what's happening now is a bunch of people are trying to yank it back onto the road. And from there, we can argue. But right now, we got to get out of the ditch. And, you know, you got to give um, Mrs. McClane credit.
1: What makes you think that, that America isn't moving closer to something that you could call a modern iteration of civil war?
0: Uh, A couple of things, actually. The first is one of the things that enabled the Confederates to move their new nation out of the mainstream as effectively as they did, was that they moved very quickly. Uh, Our system is set up in such a way that a lot of stuff moves slowly. We got a lot of layers. And that has managed to slow the system down enough that I think the media has caught up. And I don't mean the media as in the mainstream media and journalists, although I'm including them. The Internet has enabled people to push back and say, wait a minute, that's not true. Hang on, that's not true. And that I think you can see in how many people are now involved in moves to protect American democracy. We have organization after organization after organization. And people are saying, oh, you know, we're in this terrible space. And I keep saying, no, 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 no. we were in a terrible space seven years ago because nobody was paying attention. And that's precisely what happened in 1860 and 1861, when the South pulled out of the American Union as quickly as they did. They did so before people could breathe again. So the, the fact that they, the, the radicals under Trump were not able to go ahead and grab the country and wrench it apart immediately meant that they left time for uh, the better angels of our nature, if you want to quote Lincoln, but perhaps maybe just more practicalism Uh, or practicality on the part of Americans to to reinstate itself and to say, hey, wait a minute, what are you talking about? No, in fact, you know, people are not trying to destroy the country when they are trying to give people universal health care.
1: So much for those better angels. What about the avenging angels? And you've written in your newsletter about President Trump's impeachment trial. His second impeachment trial will begin next week. That's almost a year, to remind ourselves, after the Senate acquitted him on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. What does it mean whether guilty or not is the outcome?
0: Uh, The second impeachment is really interesting because Trump wants to make it a continuation of his media blitz to say that he in fact was cheated of winning the election. That's not true. I mean, he has lost, I believe, it's 63 cases in court, won one case that was um, a procedural case. He wants to use this political procedure as a way to, to continue to embrace what Americans are now calling the big lie, which, as you know, is itself a loaded term. And he's not getting pushback on that from, as I say, those, uh, those lawmakers who have supported this big lie. It is a lie. At the same time, the Democrats want to uh, establish the concept of accountability for having actually attacked our government. I mean, that's important to remember that what happened on January 6th was an attack of one branch of the United States government, the executive branch, on another co-equal branch, that that is the legislative branch. One branch of our government attacked the other.
1: It's it's just interesting listening to you, though, Hera, that you do sound... A lot more friendly to the Democrats than you sound to any form of the Republican Party that exists in 2021 anyway. Is that a journey that you think you've ended up
0: having to take? That is absolutely true, because that, by the way, does not make me hostile to the Republican Party in its healthy form, as I keep saying. I'm a big believer in the fact that a, that a healthy democracy needs at least two political parties. But right now, the Republican Party lawmakers in America are not functioning. They are anti-democratic, as I think I said last night.
1: But who is going to give up that republic? If you imagine the Republican Party splitting, this is something we discussed with Cindy McCain and others, John Bolton last year, context has moved on a bit, feels quite urgent. As you said, the car, was it? The car or the truck is in the ditch. <laughs> Get it out the ditch. But. Even when you get it out of the ditch, someone, some wing is going to hang on to that vital political brand, which has stood the test of time for all the criticisms, the ups and downs and the disasters and triumphs of the Republican Party. There's not going to be a big appetite to say, you know, we'll be the breakaway party. We'll call ourselves the new Republicans. Or is that?
0: the current day Republican Party is splitting. It's pretty clear it's splitting between this radical wing that embraces uh, QAnon, white supremacists, and uh, the more conservative economic wing. I will also point out, though, that there is a a history of the Republican Party going to extremes and then coming back. And when it comes back, it often becomes a more progressive wing than the Democrats have. Now, I don't think that's going to happen because we haven't talked about the Democrats, but they're doing something very different nowadays. But um, I, I think you can can see right now, the Republican Party splitting into these two wings, and what they're trying to do is struggle for control of the mechanics of that party, and that's not a small thing. It's money, it's it's email lists, it's officers, it's the the way that you make an organization function, and the question is who is going to win that, and you can see that right now in the fact originally that the Morris i have been calling them the—the the, um, the business wing, because you don't want to call them moderates. They're really not. I've been calling them the business wing versus the, uh, the, the Trump wing.
1: There is a, a parallel here, isn't there? Were it not for the great Shrek of President Trump, would the Democrats have held together as well as they did throughout that election? Perhaps you need a threat in order to unify
0: Oh, I think that's, I have to say, I think that's right. I mean, if there's one thing that's come out of the Trump years, and that is that the Democratic Party has finally recognized that its base is African American. And that recognition has curiously enabled the Democratic Party to go ahead and embrace one of its earliest principles, which was the idea that the government should literally look like the people in the country. So this is, of course, the most diverse cabinet and um, administration in American history, that it must honor its base in the same way that the Republicans have honored their white uh, male base. And that has meant an entirely new kind of Democratic Party. It's really very exciting.
1: Your latest book is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the soul of America. And there's a central question wrapped up in that about whether American democracy has inevitably featured or even required a degree of subordination or the subjugation of others. And as we look into Black History Month uh, in the US in February and that pattern of change since the Civil War, do you think equality is moving in the right direction? And do you see an end to the systemic racism that sort of been shot through the politics ever since?
0: Well, I argued in that book that in America the concept of equality traditionally depended on the idea of inequality, but the point of the book was to prove that it didn't have to be that way, that that is a construction that we don't have to live with. Now do I think it's going in a good direction? Of course I want to think we're going in a good direction, and we of course have the ability of people of color, not just African Americans, but people of color to vote more freely than they have in the past in America. That being said, in a moment that looked very much like the present, the 1890s, one of the ways that America developed a progressive future was essentially by cutting out uh, the vote of African-Americans and immigrants from our system. And of course, women couldn't vote then. So it does worry me that there are two directions we can go right now. We really can embrace a a multicultural democracy in this country, which I certainly hope is going to be happening, or we could simply turn back to what we did in the 1890s, which is a a society based in white supremacy that then uses the government to make it easier for white people, especially white men, to survive. And I would love to say that I have every confidence that we're going for the, the, the former, but you know, the whole point of history is we are, we're always standing on a knife edge, right?
1: You're talking to us from Maine in New Hampshire. Your partner is a lobsterman. I don't get to say that very often on the podcast. so I think I'm just going to enjoy it. <laughs> 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 How many people with a partner who's a lobsterman do you get on The Economist Asks? And you've written a lot about your deep personal connection to the landscape, to to Maine, to the sense of rootedness and about the sea there. And so we wondered what you made of the new sea shanty craze. I don't know if you've caught much of it. It was quite hard to avoid on certain parts of social media, which is our Scottish postman who's singing sea shanties and has become a bit of a sing-along hero for his Wellerman rendition. Have you had had a listen?
0: I have, and I have to say, first of all, I loved that because my mother, I I live in the region my family is from, the town my family is from, and my mother used to sing me to sleep with sea shanties. So I actually knew sea shanties growing up, and I know why they did them with the capstans and, and the sheets. But one of the things that I thought was very poignant about this craze for sea shanties is I read a wonderful uh, description of why they are so popular. And that is that, of course, we are all starved for human contact right now, and we can't have it because of the coronavirus. And what the sea shanties do is they are a, a very social thing where you are, in fact, in very intimate ways, um, sharing your voice with somebody without having to be trained as an acapella singer, and yet you don't have to touch them, which to me, you know, I love sea shanties because they are part of my history and part of my past, but I find that just heart-wrenching and a sign of just how desperately we need to get this coronavirus under control.
1: Looking at the sweep of history, do you then think, well, you know, this has been a particularly trying time, not only in the U.S., and sort of deeply divisive and troubling across large parts of the world. You you once said one of the worst tricks the world plays on us is that time is not even fully one-dimensional. We can only see backwards, not forwards. But inasmuch as you can perhaps take a historian's glimpse forward, Are things going to get better or are they going to get worse before they get better?
0: Well, of course, I'm a prophet of the past, not of the future. But that being said, um, we are, in fact, at a terribly confusing and a terribly troubling time with climate change and with the renegotiation of democracy across the globe and also with this new technology of the internet, which has changed our finances first, but also the way we communicate, and it has uh, has created frictions where nobody knew there were frictions before. These are all giant things that we have to take on. I have faith in humanity, I have faith in human beings, and in our curiosity, and above all, in our respect and our caring for each other, which is sometimes hard to see in the moments we're in. We have faced crises before. We faced world wars. We faced pandemics. We faced technological change. We have faced um, uh, colonial uh, assaults on other governments. We have faced uh, terrible things in our past. And at the end of the day, we have always managed to move forward. I argue this about, about this a lot with friends who are like, "Ah, now we are going straight to hell," you know. But I am. I have faith.
1: Heather Cox Richardson, thank you very much for joining us for your long view today.
0: It's been a pleasure to be here.
1: And we'd love to know what you think what period in American history do our current turbulent times remind you of? And what might we learn from them? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For your best introductory offer to all of our coverage on America, across the Atlantic and far beyond, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.